Fire. I think you were supposed to be there at the beginning of the service, but I'm sure they'll still take you now. Will the rest of you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1035 in the pew Bibles. Luke chapter 15. As we delve into that portion of Luke that is uh, so full of parables. Luke chapter 15. And today we're studying verses 1 to 10. Let me just read the text. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I uh, made a new friend recently. It's sort of interesting how it all happened, but... uh, uh, I've hung out with this guy a couple times. I really like him. He's a nice guy. Uh, he's not a pastor. Uh, he's not a Christian. He wouldn't, I don't think he'd identify himself as a Christian. He is, interestingly enough, uh, the lead singer in a local heavy metal band. So, uh, he dresses the part, you know, as uh, the body piercings, the tattoos. And let's just say, uh, I don't think he shops at Banana Republic, okay? Um, so he, he looks like a heavy metal guy. Anyway, I was talking to him and we were talking about religion. And uh, he's told me this story about this one Christian he met. This is kind of his impression, impression of Christians that he's experienced. I guess it was his buddy's girlfriend was a Christian and he met her. And, and she basically told him that he was going to burn in hell because he had tattoos and body piercings. She also told him that his music was demonic. Because if you've ever heard heavy metal music, you know, it's a very intense genre of music. It's very passionate. And so the people who sing it often scream and growl. And she said, you know, you growl like a demon. Which, you know, I mean, apparently she was familiar with how demons sound. I don't know. I guess they growl. I don't know. I've never heard one personally out loud. Thank God. So, uh, you know, and, and as you can guess, uh, this did not really draw him toward Jesus. <laughs> it's not like he was like, wow, can I be a Christian? Uh, thanks to that. Uh, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Christians are too judgmental. You've heard that. And you know, a lot of times we are. I think it's a big temptation we face as Christians uh, not to become judgmental. Because when you believe that this is the Word of God, when you believe that the Ten Commandments are from God and not just 
you know, like Hammurabi's code or something. They're really from God. When you believe that this is God's truth, and that starts to change your life and you're convicted of it, it's a temptation to go from that and to start then looking around at people who don't follow God's Word and to be like, you know, what's wrong with them? Look at that. Ooh, ooh. And, and somehow there's a subtle shift from believing in the Word of God to becoming judgmental. And, and let me define what I mean by judgmental because that's a term that can mean a lot of different things. When I say judgmental, what I, what I don't mean is making moral assessments because we all do that. And you have to. Even people who aren't Christians make moral assessments. We all have a morality. We all believe that certain things are right and wrong. And, and we look at something that we think is wrong and we say, oh, that's wrong. That's not judgmental. In my mind, what judgmental is, is what you do with your morality. And it's specifically an approach to others that is very condemning, self-righteous, arrogant, you know, so that you come off like that person, you know, you're going to go to hell, and that's what people experience of you. That, that kind of um, aloofness. And I think the mark of judgmentalness is it tends to um, disassociate. That's what judgmentalness does. It identifies those who are outside and puts barriers between you and them so that there's no social connection, there's no way to relate. And when that happens, I think judgmentalness is taking place. And, and we do it so easily. Whether it's moral issues, uh, like looking at someone who does a certain thing or lives a certain way and saying, you, I'm not going to connect with that person. Or sometimes it's non-moral issues. Things that aren't even in the Bible, like you know, tattoos. You know, or body piercings. I don't think that's a moral issue. If somebody does it, I wouldn't do it, but it's just, you know, I think it's more cultural almost than anything. And we take things that aren't even moral issues, like genre of music, and we, we uh, push people aside because of that. Of course, the great irony in this is that while we have this tendency to run away from the bad people, we look at the life of Jesus, and he seemed to always be running toward them. He was going the opposite direction. He habitually associated with the worst elements of society. It's a fascinating thing. Look at our story, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. So here is a very common scene in the Gospel of Luke the tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you have a New International Version translation, or maybe, I don't know the other translations, but uh, do you know sinners is in quotation marks? Um, I really wish they didn't do that. Because I think it implies by those... There's no quotation marks in the Greek New Testament. It's just that was something that was interpreted as put in there. Because I really don't think Luke is speaking tongue-in-cheek. I think that's what they really were. They were tax collectors and sinners. I mean, let's be honest. The tax collectors were crooks. They were swindlers. The reason they were so wealthy is because they used their power to uh, take advantage of their fellow Jews. And they worked for the Romans. So, you know, these were not good people. And the sinners were, you know, like prostitutes. So, you know, they really were sinners. They really were the Jews in society who, unlike their fellow Jews, did not live according to the law of Moses, who intentionally broke God's laws and lived outside of it. And so the other Jews looked at them and said, tax collectors and sinners, you are not following the ways of God and his law. So I would get rid of those quotation marks. But as I said, this is a common theme in Luke. I mean, we see Jesus doing this all the time. This was his habit. This was his M.O., uh, put a bookmark here in Luke 15. Look back at Luke chapter 5. For instance, let's just do a quick survey. This is the story of when Jesus met Levi the tax collector and called Levi to be his disciple. And what did Levi do in response? He threw a big party for all his other sleazebag friends. 
And Jesus went. Verse 29, When then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or look at chapter 7. Here's Jesus arguing with the crowds, pushing back against their unbelief. Chapter 7, verse 34. And He knows what they say about Him. This is what they say. Verse 34, The Son of Man, thats He's referring to Himself, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So that was His reputation. Or just one more. Flip ahead to Luke chapter 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. You know, the tax collector, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. The wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus comes walking under the tree and looks up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And so Zacchaeus climbs down the tree. He's excited. He welcomes Jesus into his house. But what do the crowd say? Verse 7, All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So, you know, Jesus seemed to always be hanging out with the wrong people. He is drawn like a magnet to the bad people. Uh, and the Pharisees rejected that. Going back to Luke chapter 15, back to our main text, verse 2, the Pharisees muttered. Just like that's the same word for the Israelites muttering in the wilderness. They're, mut- they're muttering. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Because the Pharisees, of course, were the upholders of religious purity. Um, they were the ones who had all the rules. They were the ones who raised the bar for following Christ or for following God's law. And so, in fact, they would even eat together in little social groups. They wouldn't eat, uh, eat with other groups. That was part of what it meant to be a Pharisee. You're part of these kind of like dining clubs. They would dine together because they didn't want to risk being contaminated by those who didn't hold the same standard of ritual purity. And so here's Jesus, a rabbi, and he's eating with these people who have just thrown God's law out the window. So that raises the question, why is Jesus doing this if he supposedly is from God and upholds God's laws? And Jesus, in verses uh, 3 to 10, actually all the way to the end of the chapter, he tells three parables. All these parables essentially have the same point. They're describing, they're explaining why it is that Jesus hangs out with these unsavory elements in society. And uh, there's the parable of the lost sheep, Verses 8 to 10, the parable of the lost coin. And then the last one's a long one, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. I'm only going to cover the first two this morning. I'm going to save the prodigal son until next week because I just feel that's such a, such a magnificent piece of literature. It's such an incredible story. I, I feel like it would be trying to cram in too much to deal with that one here. I mean, it just deserves its own sermon. You know, the prodigal son could be a sermon series. You know, don't tempt me. I might just launch... <laughs> Into like a 10-week prodigal son series. It's so good. Um, but so anyway, we're just going to look at the lost sheep and the lost coin. They're essentially the same. Both of these stories have the almost identical structure. Something precious is lost. A search is made. There's a party when it's found. It's the same structure. So look at verse uh, 4. Jesus says, this is how he's going to explain his behavior. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. 
Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. So here you have this idea of a sheep. It's out in the wilderness. Uh, Sheep, as you probably know, are very stupid animals. They're very helpless. They're very defenseless. They need shepherds to lead them to still waters and green pastures. Uh, They are easy prey for predators. And so here's the sheep. It's all by itself out in the wilderness. And the shepherd is going to go look for it. Um, Now, you have to understand, shepherds love their sheep. Shepherds spend like 24-7 with their sheep. So they were like pets. Okay, they were like members of their family. Maybe you've lost a pet. Sometimes I go for walks around the neighborhood here and they'll be on a telephone pole, you know, some photocopied piece of paper with a picture of some, you know, cat and, you know, lost cat, name Fluffy, you know, last seen date, please call, the, you know, $25 reward and, and there's this picture for Fluffy because someone lost Fluffy and hasn't seen him and doesn't know if the coyotes got him or who knows what, but Fluffy's out there somewhere and this person is heartbroken because, you know, you let an animal live in your family for five, six years and you, they just become part of your family. It's weird. We, don't, we all know that, but it's what happens. Now, imagine a sheep is not just a pet, but it's also your livelihood. It's your business. This is how you put food on your table as you shear these sheep and you sell the wool. So imagine if you're like a small business owner and this is a major part of your income, how you're going to provide for your family. So couple the emotional attachment of a pet with the business attachment of needing to provide and losing a key asset in your business. And you understand why the shepherd's like, you know, hey, look, you watch these 99, I'm going out. I've got to go find Fluffy the sheep. And so he goes out, he's searching, and he finds it, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he brings it back, and, you know, hey, everyone, I found Fluffy! Woohoo! You know, let's all the shepherds, yay, Fluffy, oh, you little Fluffy, well, you know, you know, and, and they have a big party, and it's, it's a big celebration because they found the lost sheep, and everyone uh, parties. So notice that's, that's the other part of this. Is a, there's always a party at the end. There's a rejoice, a celebration. Now skip over verse 7, because verse 7 explains the parable. I want to look at the other parable first before we get the explanation. Go to verse 8. Here's the same, same exact point, different story. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins. In Greek, that's ten drachma which a drachma was a silver coin that was about a day's wage. So if you worked for a whole day, that's what you'd get would be a drachma. Ten silver coins. She loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. So here's a woman. She's probably very poor. If ten drachma is her nest egg, then this is not a wealthy person. And you know, when you're down... To your last few dollars and you're not, you don't have a lot of money, you know every dollar counts. You treasure every cent you have when you're really struggling financially. So that's where this woman's at. This is her nest egg, 10 days wages. And one day she's looking through her silver coins and there's only nine. And so she freaks out and she goes into this tear apart the house mode. Uh, she lights a lamp because remember, uh, you know, think of a Palestinian peasant's home in those days. This is like a one-room no window box. And so if you're going to find it, you have to light a lamp and she's getting down and she's sweeping and she's checking under things and she's checking under again in case it might have magically materialized. You know how that is when you're searching for something. And you're just going crazy. And finally, after this long search, there it is. It fell in a crack in the floorboards or something. And you know she finds it and she goes outside her house laughing and all the other women who are outside doing their chores look at her and like, what's wrong? And she says, you would not believe it. I just spent two hours... Looking for this coin. 
oh, and all the other women are like, what? And then there's a big conversation in the street, and that's the talk of the village that day, and there's a big celebration. So now, what does all that mean? How does that explain why Jesus would habitually associate with really unsavory people, really morally reprehensible people? And the answer is in verse 7. Here's where it all gets tied together. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In verse 10, same point. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, you know, at the risk of belaboring this to death, <laughs> let's just lay out the parallels. You know, I need to keep it simple for myself. So, who's the lost coin? Who's the lost sheep? That's us. That's sinners, of which we all fall into that category, according to the Bible. We're all lawbreakers. We all go our own way. We all say, you know, I'm going to believe what I want, live how I want, do what I want. That's sin. It's living in rebellion against God. We're all that way. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Paul teaches us that there are none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have gone their own way. All have turned astray. We are all sinners. We are lost sheep out in the wilderness, stinky, dirty, lost, cut, hungry, starving. But then search is made. And the search is God looking for us. And Jesus specifically came from God to look for the lost sheep. And He's seeking us. And when the sheep are found, what is that? That's when a sinner like me repents from sin and turns to Christ. So you're found when you turn away from sin and believe in Christ. And then you start following Him. That's what it means to be found. And when that happens, there's rejoicing. Right? The angels rejoice in heaven. That's my favorite part of the story. To think of heaven exploding in celebration because some guy in a rehab clinic at the end of his rope cries out, not just to a higher power, but cries out to Christ and says, I am so lost. I'm as good as dead. I want to kill myself. But you know, if you are there, Jesus, and if you can save me, then do it. And in that broken, humble moment that seems so powerless and empty, to think that in the heavenly realm there's this wild celebration going on, that the angels are high-fiving and their chest thumping and everyone's screaming and you know, and lights are going off and bells are ringing and confetti is flying. And, and this guy down in the rehab clinic or that kid at school or the guy in his office who just realizes that I've got all this money and success and it's, I'm empty and he comes to Christ and to think that in heaven there's this enormous celebration going on. And so there's the imagery. I really think that this parable is essentially theological. I think that the point of this parable is to help us understand who God is and what his heart is like. That's what this parable is about. It's about God. And to think this is the heart of God. The heart of God is to seek and save the lost. That Jesus came into this world and gave up his life in order to find lost sheep like me and rescue them. Uh, as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so you wonder what God is like. You wonder, is there a God? And if so, who is he? This is a picture of this God. This God who loves his sheep so much that he's willing to go on a search for them. He's willing to become a man. God became a human being in Jesus and went all the way to the cross to rescue them and save them from their sins so that when they repent, they can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus. This is the heart of God for sinners. 
Um, in fact, there's a great uh, Old Testament text that I think really captures this. Um, in fact, if you put a bookmark here, we just need to read it. It's so good. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. If you're here for the call to worship this morning, we read portions of it. But I, you need to look at it again. Ezekiel 34. It's in the Old Testament. Page 855. If you're looking for Ezekiel 34 and you're sort of like Ezekiel who, it's Ezekiel page 855, chapter 34. is a great, a great chapter. I wish I had time just to read this whole chapter. This, this chapter deserves a sermon series. It is so good. Uh, but I don't have time. So we'll just look at bits of it. But this is, this is back around the 6th century B.C. was when this was written. It's about 600 years before Jesus. And it was at a time when the Israelites had gone into captivity. God had sent them away because of their sin. He had kicked them out of the land of Israel. They were being judged. But here is the merciful heart of God towards wayward Israel. Look at verse 11. God's looking to the future. He says, this is my plan. Yeah, you've sinned. You've ruined it. I've kicked you out of the land of Israel. But here's what's going to happen. He says, the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind the injured and strengthen the weak. And now, what's even more amazing is, and there's more we could read here, but there's even a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus in this text. 600 years before Christ. How is God going to reach out and gather a people to Himself? Through the Messiah. Look at verse 23. Check this out. It's so cool. He says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. That's a reference to the Messiah. I mean, David's been dead for 400 years by the time Ezekiel wrote this. So, What's he talking? Obviously, it doesn't mean literally David's going to come out of his grave. So who is it? Well, you know, it's common biblical language. It's the descendant of David. God is going to raise up a descendant of David who will be the shepherd. Verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So when Jesus, going back to Luke 15, when Jesus says He's the shepherd looking for the sheep, it's not just a willy-nilly metaphor. I, I think what He's saying is that there's this Old Testament imagery in the background of God as the shepherd and the Messiah as his shepherd. And Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to find the sheep. That's what he's saying. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. I'm looking for my sheep. I'm going to gather the elect to myself and find those whom God has chosen. So this is the heart of God. This is why the, this is the, the impulse of the kingdom of God. This is why Christ came into the world was to seek and to save the lost. And yet somehow, the Pharisees missed it. That's what's so remarkable. Which is so weird because the Pharisees are the Bible experts, right? These are the guys who like know the Bible backwards and forward. The Pharisees are the guys who know Ezekiel 34. They know all those texts in Isaiah about God's plans to regather people to Himself. But somehow the Bible experts, the people who pride themselves on their knowledge of God's Word, are the ones who miss it. And so somehow they miss God's heart. Even though they have all God's words, they've missed kind of the whole point of it. They've missed that this was God's plan, revealed hundreds of years prior, now coming to fulfillment. 
And I think we miss it too sometimes. I think that this, is a, this text is a great warning to Christians, to religious types, to beware of missing the heart of God even as we try to follow the ways of God. And we do. We become judgmental. That weird thing happens where we go from loving God's law to then becoming self-righteous about it and being unwilling to associate with people. Um, you know, I mean, you know, we think like, well, why would I ever go to an AIDS ward to minister to people? I mean, no way. Or I would never go to a prison. I mean, there's like drug dealers there and rapists and murderers. Um, I would never join that book club because I know half the women there are like pro-choice and pro-gay marriage and I just don't you know, want to be around them. Or I can't go golfing with those guys. I know what they're all about. I mean, they're just hard-drinking guys and they're womanizers and all they care about is making money and buying bigger toys. You know, why would I waste a day golfing with those guys? And so we just kind of insulate ourselves with people who are like us. It's very natural. We all do it. I live, I I feel like I'm trapped sometimes in a Christian ghetto. It's like I need more heavy metal singers in my life. Um, You know, I need more people in my life who swear, you know, and smoke. I just need that. I I need that part of my life. Um, I'm just kidding. But, but we really do. We surround ourselves so easily with people who are like us. It's a natural human impulse. And, and there's a sort of Christian judgmental component that gets added into it. Um, and I think part of the reason is we don't want to compromise. You know, once you start loving the gospel and loving Christ, you don't want to compromise. You don't want to compromise yourself. And there's this kind of fear that if I hang out with people who are very far from God and very far from what the Bible teaches, am I somehow you know, going to be... Um, you know, compromising my witness. It, it, are people going to you know, wonder what I'm doing with them? Like Jesus, like, you know, it's okay to go visit those tax collectors every once in a while, but Jesus, you're doing it way too much. You're really hanging out with the tax collectors all the time. This is not good for your reputation. And, and so, I, I, am I condoning certain behaviors by being with people who live certain ways? And I think we have to look to Jesus here, again, always. Because Jesus somehow held together Truth and love. It is so amazing. The Gospel of John tells us that he was full of grace and truth. Truth and love. And he didn't skimp on either. So first of all, he held on to truth. I mean, let's be clear about this. Jesus called a spade a spade. You know, when the Pharisees said, why do you eat with those tax collectors and sinners? Jesus didn't say, oh, don't be so judgmental. They're, you know, they're not, you know, don't, don't judge them. Really, we're all the same. And, you know, they're okay and you're okay. And, you know, what is morality really? It's just, it's personal. It's your personal belief and I have my personal beliefs. Yeah. He wasn't a relativist. He wasn't an, an ethical, uh, gray kind of person. There was black and white for Jesus. It's like, he, he says to the Pharisees, like, yeah, they're sinners. I know. They're lost. They need to repent. You're right, Pharisees. They have walked away from God's laws. So Jesus wasn't watering down the truth. But somehow he brought the truth with such love, with such mercy, that he didn't even have to go to them. They came to him. Look at verse 1 again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him. They just couldn't get enough of this guy. This guy who'd look him in the eye and say, you know, you have got to stop cheating people. <laughs> and somehow they wanted to be near this guy who was convicting. He was truthful. He didn't water down the truth. But he was so loving that they were drawn to him. And it convicted me and it said, would people who are far from God want to be around me? 
Is there that something in my life that's... I'm not talking about my personality. I'm not talking about my interests and vocations. Is there that supernatural aroma of the Holy Spirit and love of God that would make someone who is far from God want to be near me because God is is present in my life? Um, Or or do I just turn people away right and left because I'm like a Pharisee? Um, They flocked to Jesus. You know, that's why we're here, people. We're here as the servants of God. Sometimes you wonder why why you work where you work and why you have to sit next to who you have to sit next to in class and why you-know-who has to live a house down from you and it's like, oh, these people... I mean, you know, they swear all the time and they take the Lord's name in vain all the time. And, you know, they tell me what they did in their weekends and I don't want to hear what they did on their weekends. And they cheat and, this, you know, the stories they tell are just so gross and their ethics are gross and I'm worried about their kids hanging out with my kids because their kids are just so, you know, the things they're into, I would never let my kids do those. And, you know, those people uh, that we all have in our lives and we wonder, like, you know, why do I have to be around them? And... I think it's obvious. Jesus is calling you to be the shepherd who goes to those sheep. Which is this weird thing in Christianity, right? We're sheep, and then we're saved, and then we become shepherds. So I'm like a sheep with a staff in my mouth. It's very strange. But I'm a sheep. I'm saved by the grace of God, but I'm also called to be like a shepherd. So it's very weird, but you know, if you can picture all this. So here we are. God's calling you to be the shepherd. God's calling you. That's why that person is in your life. You know, the person you're like, it's five o'clock, it's almost five o'clock, come on clock, I've got to get out of this workplace, I've got to get away from this person who's just so morally disturbed and, and they don't even realize it. And to realize that I was a lost sheep that God found, that I was and in some ways still am morally disturbed and I need God to save me. And so God's calling me to go toward that person and reach out to them. If I won't associate with those people, whoever they are, then what I am in effect saying is God wouldn't save them. Now, I know none of us would say that, but isn't that what my actions are saying if I won't associate? Aren't I in effect saying God won't save you? Which is so (laughs) far from the heart of Christ, which is why he came and died on the cross. And so do we have room in our lives for those who are really just going the opposite direction from Christ? Are we willing to associate and to let them into our lives? But you know, let me just close by flipping this parable around because I think there is, we need to look at it from the other perspective too. We've been looking at it from the perspective of how it applies to the religious types like us Christians. But what about if you're on the other side of the story and you're more like the tax collectors and prostitutes and whatever and and you look at your life and the question you're asking is, the thing you're saying isn't God wouldn't save them. The thing you're saying is God couldn't save me. You know, how does this apply to those who know that they're lost? And maybe you're like, yeah, I'm a lost sheep. Yeah, pastor. You know, I know I am. I am so lost. My fur is so matted, wool is so matted with mud and filth and there's sticks in it. I'm so dirty because I've been living in the wilderness for like ever. And, you know, I forgot what a green pasture even looks like. And I'm so hungry and famished because I haven't been eating green pastures. I haven't gone to the still waters. And I'm cut and there's predators after me. And, you know, I'm lost and I'm so far into the woods. And every time I hear your voice, I just keep going the other direction. 
And I'm lost because I keep running further and further into the woods. And I'm so banged up and nicked up from what others have done to me and what I've done to myself and what I've put into my body. Oh, you know, you could never save me. You could never save me. I'm too far gone. Or you say, I'm like that lost coin. I fell in this crack and all this dirt covered me up and no one's ever going to find me. And someday they're going to tear the house down and I'm just going to go in the ground and, you know, I'm a lost coin. No one, no one knows I'm in that crack. And I just want to tell you that, yeah, you're lost. Yeah, you've made so many bad choices. So have I. We've sinned. But Jesus, He came to find the sheep. He knows exactly where you are. Yeah, your fur is all yucky, but the blood of Jesus can cleanse even the foulest, dirtiest sheep. He knows the crack you're in. No one else knows it. You're hiding it so well. You're in the crack. And He knows exactly where you are. And He's searching for you. He's looking for you. And so repent. Turn to Christ with what little tiny glimmer of faith He's given you. Just use that and say, okay, Jesus, I don't know very much. I have all kinds of questions. But with what little strength I have, I turn to You. And realize that when you do, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over you, one sinner who repents. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank You, Jesus, that You are the Good Shepherd. Thank You that You lay down Your life for the sheep. Thank You that Your blood can cleanse the foulest sheep. Thank You that You know right where we are. Thank You that You came into this world not to judge, but to save. And so, Lord, I pray that You would soften our hearts, that You would turn us toward Yourself. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians that You would help us to harmonize ourselves with Your heart that You would open our eyes to see the people You've put into our life who need Your love, that we would be humble enough to recognize that we are just sheep saved by grace ourselves. And Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know You, oh Jesus, I pray that in spite of all of their objections and all of their philosophical arguments, that they would begin to hear in their hearts that still, quiet voice calling them home. And that, Lord, that still, quiet voice would overrule all of the, the objections and issues and hang-ups they have with You. And that it would just overpower them. And that they would come to know Your love. Lord, that Your love would overcome their doubts and their worries and their hurts and their sins. And so, Lord, save the people for Yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jennifer, our worship director, asked,